Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Look, y'all know we harp on it a lot. You need a good pair of binos. Yeah, I never hunted with binos until I was almost into my 20s. I never did it when I was a teenager or anything like that. Or when I was a kid, we never had binos. And when I bought my first pair of Vortex binos, the first binos I ever purchased back in like 2015, it immediately made a huge difference for me, especially in the turkey woods. So give yourself the advantage of a good pair of binos this spring, whether you're looking for more of like an entry-level bino like the Vortex Diamondbacks or something really, really nice like the Razors. Vortex is going to have something for you. And hey, don't pay full price for it. Use our discount code at eurooptic.com. Use the code SGN10 to get a discount on any Vortex optics that you want to order. Again, that's eurooptic.com, code SGN10 to go get a discount on any Vortex product you order. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the EcoWild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Maxwell, along with my trusty co-host, the ginger bow hunter himself, Jacob Myers. Jacob. What's going on? (laughs) (laughs) Just being sick. Oh, man. Oh, God, dude. Hacking up along on the podcast. Guys, so Andrew's just made it back to Alabama after hunting up here for almost about half a week uh, in Tennessee, and it kicked his freaking butt, so it seems. Hey, it kicked yours, too. Yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> Especially the saddle hunting. The saddle hunting literally kicked your butt. Dude, it is, it's it's different, man. It's different. It's kind of rough. I mean, at, after a while, I kind of figured out, like, it's all about how you place your tether and definitely getting knee pads. 100% getting knee pads. Um, and then I'm telling you, it'd be, it's going to be so much easier with my platform, dude. It's not even going to be funny. But I had my first experience with the Wild Edge Steps, which I have mixed feelings about. So, yeah. <laughs> what are your mixed feelings? Um, Jonathan let me borrow his, or one of his steps for part of my platform. Jonathan from uh, Catman Outdoors, guys. Uh, me and him went on a hunt this afternoon on some public land, and he hunts out of a sit-and-drag saddle um, that he's modded up. And, you know, he uses Wild Edge Steps as his platform. So he let me borrow one of his four uh, to kind of like put up on mine and just try to see how, how, how well it worked. And, and what I was going to use, which this hunt, dude, it was a freaking fiasco, man. I, I forgot my release, forgot my pull-up rope, <laughs> forgot my one screw and step, and forgot my, um, my bow holder. Dude, it was freaking rough. Like... Uh, just a fiasco. And That's like, usually I, the kind of hunt that I kill something on, though. No, not this hunt. Not this hunt at all. <laughs> uh, anyways, it just killed my batteries on my camera. That was about it. Uh, but anyways, we were going to go do a double set uh, with the saddles and just kind of go to a new area that he, he hasn't really deer hunted in early season much. And uh, I had never had any experience in this area. and uh, But he saw a lot of deer sign there uh, earlier today when he was in there doing some scouting. So we went in there, man. But before we went in, the funny part, he filmed some of this, and it was freaking hilarious. So once I realized I did not have my release, and guys, I shoot a thumb release, um, we decided to shoot a stump uh, with my small game head and just with my fingers and to see how off it was. And to be honest, dude, I was surprised with myself. Dude, at, <laughs> at, at like fifth, dude, I might shoot it, dude. I sh- so I shot a stump at 15 yards. And was aiming for like a small, like probably like the size of like a 50 cent piece of just like fungus growing on it. And I hit maybe two inches uh, lower left. Um, so within two inches of where I was hit or where I was aiming, I hit uh, with my fingers. So that was, I was pretty impressed with myself. Um, but anyways, so we decided that if there was a deer within 15 yards, I would shoot it and anything farther he would shoot. Um but anyways, yeah, we didn't we didn't have any opportunities with that. But man, 
yeah, sitting in a saddle, man, will kick your butt. But getting back to like why you asked me, like my mixed feeling on wild edge steps, you know, they're not really tricky to use once you kind of get the knot down and everything. But it's kind of, uh, you know, Sean Clarkson or buddy Sean, he is not a fan of them at all. Like he's like anti those steps just because you know he calls it the the monkey knot to try to like get it to cinch down correctly. And I will say, I think he's right about like it's kind of sketchy because if you're a little too tight or a little too loose. You can't get a good snug, good snug fit, and either it'll slip on you right then, or it's gonna slip on you later on, and that's what happened to me. Um, so I use my... it. It slipped on you later on. It like spun, dude, like straight up, like so. So I'm probably I didn't get super high up in this tree. I mean, I used four sticks, but I was probably sixteen feet, seventeen feet up in this tree, maybe. And um, anyways, had a little stick, and I put the. Uh, wadded step right next to it, uh, you know, a couple inches to the left, and uh, cinched it down. It took me a little while to get cinched down correctly and make it cam over. And when it cammed over, you know, it was it was solid. But I, st- I stood on it, and the second I put pressure on it, dude, it like gave away. But uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it's user's error, user error. I was like, oh heck to the now, dude. And I'm like, that doesn't give me much confidence. So I like went back down a step, retied it. And got it to cam over again, and it, it was solid, like before. I got back on it, and I'm like, you know, it feels pretty solid, no big deal. And, uh, anyways, after sitting there, dude, for an hour and a half, I actually had my foot, like, you know, the water step has like a gap in between, like the crossbar and like where the tree is. So, like, I had my foot in that gap because sitting off to my left, I had my foot in it, my heel, uh, just so I can kind of like press off and like kind of you know swing around the tree a little bit. And, dude, after, like, an hour and a half of, like, kind of standing up, sitting down, standing up, sitting down, I, I looked down at it, and I swear to, dude, it was cocked. It was cockeyed probably, I don't know, 20, 50, probably 15 degrees to, like, to the left. So, like, the side that my foot had been sitting on was pressed down, and the side up against my heel that was closer to me was, like, up in the air. Um, so, I was like, uh, I don't That's have... Yeah, and I was like, I don't have a lot of confidence on this. I stood up on it, dude, and it, like it shifted, and like spun a little bit to the left, and like I was like, I'm, I'm good, dude. And I, I just tried not to move again for the rest of the hunt because I didn't feel like getting back down and retying it. But uh, dude, yeah, it was it was kind of sketchy, man. It was kind of sketchy. Not not a huge fan of it, uh, personally. Um, yeah. But again, maybe it's user's error. I, I don't know. But you know, if if it's you know, I, I tried it on the ground, it was fine. But like once you get up in the air, dude, get up in the tree and uh put some weight on it for an extended period of time, it just wanted to shift. So I don't know. Guys, yeah. if if anyone else has ever had any issues with that using them as a platform, because I'm sure if you were just like climbing up and down it like as a you know, as a step ladder as they say, it probably is not that big of a dish issue. But when you have constant pressure on it, especially when it's on like just part of it. Uh, I'm sure you know it might spin a little bit on you just because of the design. So if anyone's ever had any issues like that, please comment or like let us know because I'm curious. Because uh, that makes me that makes me think kind of twice about ordering a, a set of them uh, once they come back in stock uh, for a complete setup, dude. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, dude. the The saddle hunting thing for me, which I was using your saddle, which was a little bit too big for me for sure, but. I mean, still, I, I was able to hunt out of it a few times, and my thing with the saddle hunting is, like, first of all, it was a lot easier to maneuver around than I thought it'd be, and it was a lot easier to, like, shoot to your weak side and shoot behind you and stuff than I thought it would be, but 
you it also required just like an absolute ton of movement like for me at least like i was i felt like i was constantly yeah. moving up in the tree just like trying to get comfortable or trying to look around because it's not like with a with a tree stand you can just sit there and i'm sure you can do this with a saddle too i just haven't figured it out yet but you know in a tree stand you can just sit there and watch in the saddle i'm like leaning around the tree trying to see in front of me because if i'm standing up and leaning back i can see in front of the tree but if i'm like resting down you know against the tree i can't see around it so i'm constantly leaning i'm constantly moving around trying to get comfortable it's it's just I don't know if that's something that goes away after a while. Hopefully it is. Uh, But, yeah, definitely a unique experience. Yeah, no, I noticed that too. I mean, even once I got, like, as comfortable as I I probably could have been, uh, which, again, it was just more about, like, first of all, making sure the saddle was – the saddle comes up higher up on your lower back than I thought it did. It actually comes up above your waist, uh, which is actually nice because once you have it adjusted to that, it actually, like – it, it, it gives a little bit more back support to it. And another thing is I got comfortable after like the first 30 minutes, I was like, Oh, I'm kind of sketched up by falling out of it. Then you think about it, your legs are strapped and like, you cannot fall out of the freaking thing, dude. Uh, yeah. So I got like super comfortable up there. And I like, you know, didn't really, you know, wasn't really at all worried about falling. It was, it, I mean, it was pretty fascinating knowing that you're, you know, you're securely attached to the tree and save your, your, your footing slipped or that freaking wattage step fell off. I mean, all you're going to do is to smack the freaking tree right there in front of you. You're not going anywhere. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, dude, it was just interesting. You, like, you, for sure, there's a, I feel like there's a, a decent amount of movement involved just to be able to kind of look around, uh, which I'm sure, you know, if you think about it on the stand, you know, you know, rotating to the left, rotating to the right, you know, moving your shoulders and your head, you know, you, you move a little bit, but it just seems like it's exaggerated while you're in the saddle. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. But, you know, as the season goes on, we'll kind of keep learning about it. And, you know, those are probably pretty common problems, and hopefully we'll be able to alleviate them. But uh, real quick about getting into this episode. So for this episode, uh, Jacob wasn't able to make it on uh, just because he he wasn't able to make the drive down from Nashville. But uh, me and our friend and fellow BHA state captain, Chad Granger, Went to Montgomery to interview Chuck Sykes, who is the director of wildlife and freshwater fisheries for the state of Alabama. Uh, it was a pretty fascinating interview, to say the least. Like, first of all, Chuck has a freaking awesome office. He had like, uh, like three booners in there and a daggum bunch of turkeys too. So that that was pretty cool. And he had just a lot of cool taxidermy, a lot of cool pictures. And Chuck's just really a cool guy in general. Um, we talked about a variety of topics from uh, issues that not only Alabama is having with turkeys, but also really the whole Southeast, uh, because uh, pretty much every state in the Southeast right now is suffering some decline in their turkey population, so we kind of talk about that a little bit at ongoing research, and we talk about some other stuff, including uh, bears, elk, uh, you know, a number of policy issues, uh, just a whole bunch of really cool stuff that I wanted to hear about. And so I'm sure that everyone else will want to hear about, about it too. Cause it's just kind of a lot of hot topics. And even if you're not from Alabama, there's, there's still a lot of stuff in here that kind of speaks to a broader topic. 
so I think that you'll find it entertaining too. So if you're from Tennessee, Georgia, Mississippi, Florida, something like that, uh, I encourage you to keep to listen to this full episode because there's a lot of stuff we talk about that is is applicable to the entire Southeast. We're not just talking about Alabama. But you about to say something? No, I was gonna say just you know I'm excited to hear it. You know, just you know hearing about you kind of explain to me on some of the topics y'all talked about and how in-depth y'all went on some topics. I'm extremely fascinated about it, especially some really hot topics. Uh, maybe something, yeah. some CWD. stuff. CWD. Yeah, some stuff that's maybe kind of controversial and kind of getting someone's mind mindset on it that's, uh, you know, been doing this for uh, quite a while and very uh, highly educated uh, gentleman who's, uh, I, I, you know, I definitely look up to him. I know a lot of people do not like him just because of some of his policies, but I mean, it's, I mean, it's like anything, you know, there's always gonna be haters out there. So, yeah, I, I have to say, I have, I have the utmost respect for him, uh, because to be completely honest, you'll hear it in the, in the beginning of the interview. He's not exactly crazy about his job just because it eats up pretty much all of his hunting time. And he's constantly having to deal with politicians, which he does not like. And I mean, this dude's sacrificed a lot to be in the position that he's in, and he's put a lot into it. And personally, I think that he's done the state a whole lot of good. And I think that we're gonna we're gonna be benning, benefiting from it for a very very long time uh, because of the hard work he's put in. So, yeah, I'm glad that he's in there, and I hope he sticks around, which I'm I got a feeling he will. <laughs> but yeah, so. This, this is a fun episode to record. Pretty interesting topics that I think everyone will enjoy. But I'll give you all a little teaser about next week's episode. So we mentioned earlier that me and Jacob have been hunting in Tennessee all week. Well, we have a lot to talk about from that hunt. And we definitely could not squeeze it in this intro, especially because it's almost midnight and we're both sick and tired. <laughs> but... We're going to be talking about the hunt and some lessons that we learned. It was definitely a hunt that we experienced both the highs and the lows of bow hunting. So there's a lot of lessons to be learned. And I will say that there was a deer killed and it died in a very unique way, which we will explain next week. Yeah, Andrew, Andrew scared it to death. Uh, so... Yeah, I oh. gave it the death glare, and it just, it just couldn't handle it. Man, I'm telling you, man, oh, it's rough. But yeah, so anyways, guys, let's make sure you tune in for the next week. Also, we decided we're gonna move that giveaway that we kind of talked about uh, on Facebook. We're gonna move it back to next week as well. So make sure y'all tune in for next week's uh, main episode on what this giveaway will be. I know y'all are gonna really enjoy it, especially because you can use it out during the season and probably have a lot of success using it as well. Uh, other than that, Andrew, do you have anything else before we need to turn it over? Uh, that's about all for me, folks. Make sure you please, uh, share this podcast with your buddies and leave a rating or review if you enjoy it. And, uh, yeah, that's about it. Oh, and go check out the YouTube channel. Um, we got some, we got a whole bunch of stuff dropping in the next two weeks. So check it out. So with that, what? I was say, yeah, with that being said, for sure, make sure you check out the YouTube channel. It's going to be uh, some big stuff dropping on that. Plus, our giveaway has to do with the YouTube channel. So make sure you are subscribed to us. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it will That's pay off. Point. It, will, it will pay off in the end, guys. It will pay off. Yes, sir. All right, let's kick it over.
All right, everybody, and now we're here with uh, Mr. Chuck Sykes in Montgomery in his office. Uh, Chuck, I'll let you introduce yourself, man. Probably don't need an introduction, but... Well, I'm Chuck Sykes, Director of Wildlife and Freshwater Fisheries. Uh, December will be my sixth year here, which is about five and a half longer than I figured I would stay here. But, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll go from there. Yeah, and I also got my friend uh, Chad Granger here with me, who... I'm surprised it hasn't been on the show yet. It's probably overdue. But Chad, yeah. how you doing, man? It's good to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you're here with me, dude. Um, Jacob couldn't make it down. He's up in Tennessee selling x-ray machines and shooting does on the ground. <laughs> but uh, let's kick it right off with a question for you, Chuck. Um, how'd you get in this job? <laughs> wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> um all seriousness, I had a private consulting business and I was managing property all over the country and I had a couple of my consulting clients ask me to apply for it when the job came open. And I said, no way, shape, form, or fashion do I want to work for the state. I had been happily self-employed my whole career. Um, made the mistake of telling my wife and she went online and filled out my application <laughs> this is 100% serious um, did that I didn't even know when she had done it it was sometime like in early spring and end of October the 1st of November I was working in Illinois and I got a call from from the commissioner secretary wanting me to come in this was like on a Tuesday wanting me to come in Thursday for an interview I said I'm in Illinois I'll be back in Alabama in three weeks well, the interview period is over Friday. Well, I hope y'all find who you're looking for. And the next day I got a call back and um, asked me when I could come in and told them and set up an appointment for me to come in and talk. And the harder I tried to convince Commissioner Guy that I wasn't the person for the job, the harder he pressed that he thought I was. And Growing up in Alabama and going to school in Alabama and getting a degree in wildlife, and this is where I'm going to die. If once I was offered the job, and it sounds corny, but I could never complain about anything again if I didn't take it. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'll be judged down the road whether what we're doing is, is right, and that's that's fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know it's it's come with some sacrifices, but I'm I know I'm grateful for you being in the position because well, I've seen absolutely. I've seen things turn for the good for the state. It you know, not saying that my way's right or the people that I've got in place and again we'll be judged on it down the road whether what we're doing's right or not, but uh, again I had to take it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it's like voting. If you don't vote you can't complain about who's in office. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Same thing same thing here. And I, I knew that it was going to be a challenge. Um, I didn't think I would last as long as I have. The average tenure for this position nationwide is two and a half years. Wow. Um, it's just a high stress. And I'm a biologist. I'm not a politician. And you put a biologist who has been paid for their whole career to give their opinions. That doesn't go over <laughs> real well uh, in, in many cases. Yeah. And um, it's kind of been trial by fire. I'm, I'm learning to adapt and mm, learning to pick my words a little better. Um, 
but it, it's been interesting. I think we're doing some good things, and again, in 20 years, I hope I can look back and say it was worth it. Right now, it's not. Yeah, uh, before we got on, we were talking about hunting, and you said you might not even get out until November. Yeah. That sacrifice if, right there. If I'm lucky, I mean, that's that's people think that, you know, you got the director's job, that's, that's all you do is yeah. go to places mm-hmm. and hunt. And you also no. didn't draw an SOA. No, so that <laughs> just goes to prove that it's not rigged that me and all of my friends are the only ones getting drawn because I put in for, I don't know, four or five different hunts on all of the locations where I could test the system. I mean, me and Chief Galden and a bunch of us do it where we can try to troubleshoot any problems. Nobody that I know of got drawn. You're the first person that I've talked to mm-hmm. that got drawn and, and actually got accepted. So Yeah. I've gotten drawn twice. I got or I got an alternate. Well, we won't get into that. I screwed it up last year, but I got it this year. But it was funny because uh, uh, on one of our Facebook groups, there's when y'all were doing the drawing for the SOAs, there was some guy on there who's like, oh, they're just giving it to all their buddies. It's all political. And then two hours later, he's like, "Hey, I got a tag for a um, Cedar Creek or whatever." <laughs> I'm like, "That's the one I keep trying to get on." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I bet he didn't go back and apologize for the previous comments. No, no. Uh, I, you know, I, I see all. I, I try. I look at Facebook every once in a while, and I see your name popping up quite frequently as posted on this and that. Honestly, I can't. I can't look at it. Yeah, because typically it's it's the disgruntled people that are on there talking. Somebody that's happy is not going to get on there and sing the praises. It's always once we got it with the alligator drawing and the SOA drawing. It's rigged. It's political. Follow the money. That's where I'm. You know, that's a great buzzword. You know, and, and phrase. But I want to see how follow the money applies to about ninety percent of the stuff that we do. We don't get anything out of rigging a drawing. Yeah. You know, that's random selection process. That's why we do that. You've got a limited opportunity to do it. And we we took quite a bunch of criticism off of our Facebook page. Thankfully, we've got a good lady that monitors it and puts out a lot of the misinformation that once it gets started. But, uh, you know, there was people that I knew, well, this is public land. We should be able to hunt it whenever we want to then it wouldn't be a special opportunity area. Yeah. yeah. We've got several hundreds of thousands of acres of public land that you said you hunted Tuskegee a lot. You can go mm-hmm. to Tuskegee whenever you want to. Mm-hmm. Yep. A lot of our WMAs, you can go whenever you want to. These pieces of property are strategically located. They're in some of the best locations in the state. We want everybody to have that good opportunity, whether you're the first guy that got drawn or the last person in the gate. And I think the way we're doing it is going to give some some great opportunities to people that typically wouldn't have that. I mean, you look at Uchi or Cedar or Portland, if that was a hunting club, that's 25 or $30 an acre property. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're going to have to have 100 people in it to pay for it, and there's going to be 50 people there every weekend. Yeah. This is just an opportunity that I never thought we would be able to offer. I hunted Portland in 2006 when Mossy Oak had it. I know what's down there. I know what it can be. And for us to be able to purchase that 
and provide it for somebody to have an Alabama hunting license and a WMA permit, that's un unbelievable. That's one of the, the proudest things that I guess we've done since I've been here for me is being able to, to provide that. And I know some people aren't gonna like it. That's fine, I didn't take this job to make friends. I had plenty. Yeah, you'll, ne you'll never make everybody happy. If we manage just to make people happy, we'll always lose. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you manage what's best for the resource and you hope hunters understand that and healthy populations will yield mm -hmm. happy hunters. Yeah, I, I think the, the SOA thing definitely is one of the best things that's happened in my lifetime for this state just because a lot of people growing up in my generation are very like unaware of any kind of public opportunity like I used to work in Field and Stream in Hoover that bow shop and I talked to hundreds of people who were buying archery equipment and they were like yeah I want to hunt but I don't know where to not knowing that while we're standing there they got 30,000 acres 20 minutes mm -hmm. away and I think the SOA thing you know, as it, as it grows, and y'all said you got a pretty good bump in applications this year, as it grows, I think that's a good way for people to have it catch their eye, and maybe they go down the rabbit hole, like, oh, I didn't get drawn, but, you know, here's a link to WMA permits mm -hmm. or something on places that you can hunt yep. anytime. Yeah. I think it's a good on-ramp um, to a, a, a well-managed public land opportunity, because I think one of the biggest misnomers we have in the East is that hunting on our public lands is not good. I know that was something I, uh, the myth that went around when I grew up. Well, you don't want to go out there with every Bill, Bob, and, mm -hmm. and, and John because you might get shot, the hunting's not good. And so I grew up, thankfully, with privilege of having family property, friends, relationships. And I didn't start stepping on our public lands in the East until I actually, after I went West yeah. and saw the benefit that our public lands were. And the opportunities that were there and it got me thinking this same thing's in my backyard so how do we work through some of that miseducation or some of this false um, narratives that go around our public lands in the east particularly in Alabama it's a generational thing it's something that we're not going to change overnight I mean you go out west 80% of the property out there is public land people grew up with it being public you come here 97% of the land is private so we didn't grow up. I didn't. I Like you, I was fortunate. My father and grandfather had 200 acres. Mm -hmm. That's what I hunted on. If I didn't hunt there, I didn't hunt. Um, so there is the misperception that you're going to get shot, which, knock on wood, in the five years that I've been here, I think we may have had one incident of someone shooting themselves in the foot on public land the rest of the hunting accidents are on private land. Mm -hmm. um, and I consider myself to be a pretty good hunter. I've grown up doing it. I think I can go in the woods and find where to kill something. But if I'm looking at a 60,000 acre map of skyline yes. and I'm thinking about driving three hours to go hunt, go find a place to hunt, do all my homework, get in there, and then have Bob or Tom come stumbling through there smoking a cigarette an hour after daylight. That is a perception for somebody that's used to hunting on private land. You have that. Mm -hmm. Well, go to the opposite end of the spectrum, somebody that doesn't know how to hunt. 
that's already a little intimidated about what to do, there's no way they're going to pick up that map and go try to do that. So what we thought about with these SOAs, it gives a private land hunter a reason to go to a piece of public land where they can see what's going on there. And then it gives the regular public land hunters like y'all a different opportunity. And then it gives the novice hunters something that they feel like they can accomplish. Yeah, it's 6,500 acres, but me and my buddy can only hunt this 500 acres and it's got boundaries all the way around it. It's got signs everywhere. I'm not going to get lost. Nobody's going to be there but me and my friend. That's a much less intimidating environment than just going to the bankhead or skyline. So mm-hmm. it's going to take time. I mean, change is hard. Anytime you change something, there's going to be resistance. But I think in the long run, it's going to be one of the best programs that we've got going. I agree. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, you mentioned those areas used to be hunting clubs and how you know, you'd know you have to have like 50 guys mm-hmm. to, to afford it. It's funny you mentioned that because growing up, my dad was always taking me out to public land like around Birmingham where I grew up. And we he wasn't a very good hunter, to put, to put it plainly. He, was a, he grew up a squirrel hunter, got out of hunting in high school and college. And then when I was born, he kind of got back into it because he just wanted me to be interested mm-hmm. in it. Um, and we just we had a lot of bad luck on the public land. So we moved to, he started joining some hunting clubs. We had luck. And then... When I was 14, he passed away. I'm a 15-year-old, don't have a place to hunt. I start going to, you know, public land with buddies who I can ride with or I can start driving myself. And I get out there, and there are spots on... Oh, I almost said it. <laughs> there are spots on some of these areas where uh, it, it, like, it resembled the club I was in or spots where there was less pressure than the club. Mm-hmm. So people have this whole idea that public lands are all like, you know, jacked up, everyone's out there. But, I mean, I've been to plenty of places where I'm like, this this private land is getting hit way harder than my spots on so-and-so wildlife management area. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, I grew up dog hunting in Alabama, and I love it. it has, I have a tender heart for dog hunting. Um, but the you put dog packs on deer every weekend, then you try to still hunt those deer, and then you got all the people in the club. I know I was hunting more pressured deer on my hunting club growing up than on most of our public lands. Mm-hmm. Um, same way with turkeys. I've got in private leases, and they just turn out to not have birds on them during that time, and I can go on public land and find birds, and I've had better opportunities <coughs> on public land than some of the private leases I've put money in for. Mm-hmm. It, it all goes back to how much you want to invest in it. If you want to walk a little bit, you can find turkeys. If you want to get more than 100 yards off of the road, you can probably go kill a decent deer at a bunch of these WMAs. I mean, there's there's people, we get pictures constantly, 140s, 150s. We even had a couple of 170s and 180s coming off of public land that anybody can go hunt. But they're not behind every tree. It's not what you see on TV. You're not sitting in a $10,000 shooting house on a food plot. You got to get in the woods and scout and hang stands and hunt and hunt and hunt. But if you put forth the effort, it's there. It's there for you, and it's getting a whole lot less pressure than most hunting clubs are. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, uh, so kind of expanding a little bit on the public land thing, we've uh, like just 
to name a few, um, Scotch, I think, management area, and then there's some others that I forgot the names, lost those completely, mm-hmm. lost quite a bit of land off of uh, Cahaba and Coosa, and then I'm sure there's some other ones in there. Um, you think that's a problem that's going to kind of continue, get yeah. worse? Oh, there's no doubt. Mm-hmm. And when you look and it says Alabama's that our wildlife and freshwater fisheries is managing 750,000 acres of public hunting, we may only own 150,000 of it. Mm-hmm. Forever Wild only owns a certain portion of it. A lot of that is National Forest, uh, Corps of Engineers, TVA, um, Forestry Commission. There's a lot of those lands that are just, we are allowed to manage the hunts on, so we have no management capability on. All we can do is manage the hunting. So habitat management. Habitat management. It, it's not our property. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Scotch, 18,000 acres, South Alabama, Boykin that was, was about 18,000 acres down there. That Both of those families had allowed the department to hunt on those properties for over 50 years. No money. Just here it is. You put somebody on there. You keep up the road. You maintain it. Y'all can hunt it. Well, that was great, and we are very appreciative of that. But y'all, things have changed a lot in the past 50 years. Families change. A lot of this property, you mentioned uh, Cahaba and, and Coosa. Instead of it being a family forestry operation, it was sold to a or REIT that's got a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders. Mm-hmm. They can lease it for $10 an acre rather than give it to the state to manage hunting on it. Yeah. I don't blame them for doing it. I'm, I was a private business guy too. So, yes, that trend is going to keep going because times have changed. That was a flawed business model to rely on somebody to give you public hunting land. So, in what we're trying to do, the odds of going out and buying an 18,000 acre track of land is slim to none. First, is financially it's almost impossible, and then finding a contiguous block in the right place where you can do it. So. We changed to this SOA model where you can get these smaller tracks that are in really good locations and offer that because the odds of us going in and replacing Scotch or replacing Boykin, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So are you guys looking to do like pretty much most of the new properties you're getting as SOAs or just regular forever wild properties that are wide open? It just depends on where they're located and what the objective is. I mean, Mm -hmm. for forever wild to purchase it, it can be a nature preserve, it can be a state park, it can be a WMA. There's several different categories. Some of the ones that we're like uh, Cedar Creek, we partnered with them where we could utilize their match where we could get to our PR federal dollars. It was just wise stewardship of hunters money and forever wild money. PR being Pittman Robinson. Right, so they're deeded 25% of that property, we're deeded 75% of it. So there will still be some forever wild missions there, but 75% of it is land that we own, we manage, we do everything on so we can make sure in perpetuity that's going to be managed right for wildlife and for hunting. And that's, I mean, we're, we're doing the best we can with what we've got to deal with. Y'all know the only money that we have comes in from hunting and fishing license and, and the PR dollars. 
That's it. We don't get appropriations from the general fund. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that a little better? Because I know I've, I've read an article that you wrote or you were referenced that there's possibly some discrepancy in how many people we think are actually hunting in Alabama and how many are actually purchasing license and how license sales um, generates funding for your job for wildlife management, how that's matched by Pittman Robinson. Yeah. Can you explain that? Yeah, that may take us a couple of hours, but I'll try to give the abbreviated <laughs> version because it's complicated. Yeah. Um, we do not receive any money from the state general fund. So nobody's tax dollars goes for us to provide services. We make money off of people buying hunting and fishing licenses. All right, let's just talk about hunting. If you are under 16, you don't have to have a hunting license. If you're over 65, you don't have to have a hunting license. And if you're a private landowner and your family hunting on your own property, you don't have to have a license. That's three big pieces of the pie oh, yeah. that we're giving away. You hunt in other states, you know that's not the case. I think we're only one of five states that have those exemptions. So yes, we have a lot more people hunting in the state that are not having to buy a hunting license. So for example, Pittman-Robertson, it was an act passed in 1937. The Cliff Note version is manufacturers of guns and ammunition got together right after the great or the tail end of the Great Depression. Wildlife numbers were in the tank from either people killing them to eat or market hunting. That's how they made their living. These manufacturers had the foresight to say if these state agencies don't have money to protect, conserve, and enhance wildlife we're not going to have customers. So they placed an excise tax on themselves that every time you buy a gun, they pay 11% into a fund to fund agencies like ours nationwide. How that money is allocated to us is based on our land mass, which we can't do anything about. Alabama's not going to get any bigger. And the number of hunting licenses we sell. So it's, it's a twofold effect. When I first started, in December of 2012, our PR apportionment was $8 million. Last year, it was $19 million. Why? What changed in that short amount of time? Decrease of hunters? No, sir. The money went from $8 million to $19, 19. million. Well, that's, I'm, I'm sitting here yeah. kind of dumbfounded and surprised because I know our hunter numbers are decreasing, yeah. so I'm, okay. I don't so know. The, the Obama administration. The gun sales. They were the best gun, <laughs> the gun salesmen sales. ever. There you go. So people were stocking up on guns and ammunition. Most of those people were not hunters. They were buying it for self-protection, yeah. home protection, or just target shooting. So there was a huge influx of money into Washington paid for by Alabama people to come back to Alabama, but since they weren't buying hunting licenses, we couldn't get to it. We have to spend money to get money. Yeah. If we have a million dollar project, we have to spend 250000 to get 750000 to finish it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So if we don't have that non-federal match, we've got money sitting up there that has a shelf life on it that goes to another state if we can't do it. That's how this partnership with Forever Wild blossomed. We were looking at reverting money. I can, I can staff up 
And then what happens when the gun bubble goes down, then I got to start laying people yeah. off. I'm not going to do that. So we were looking at other ways. That's why we're doing a ton of research right now. We're trying to get answers to a bunch of these questions because the universities can pay for that 25% match where we're using our federal dollars to do it. And it's not costing, theoretically not costing anything. So that's the, that's the problem. Gun sales are great, ammunition sales are great, but unless people buy hunting licenses or we find another source of non-federal money like Forever Wild, we're gonna be in a mess. Yeah. I hope that explained it. That was, it, it's, a, it's a difficult process unless you're in this position to grab. Just the average guy out there, I didn't know all this five years ago. Of course, when I studied in Auburn, I knew what Pittman-Robertson was, and I knew that was excise tax. I didn't understand all the ins and outs of it. So I can understand how people don't truly comprehend what they're doing, and that money is going for buying land in Alabama, providing services of our biologists. I mean, it's everything that we do, hunters and fishermen are paying for, and every other person in the state's receiving the benefit from it. So those people, and I got to take a lot of criticism about this, I'm a private landowner. I still buy a hunting license. Because if I have a poaching problem on my property and I call the local officer and want them to go respond, okay, I'm, I'm paying for their salary. I can feel good about it. Yeah. If I'm not, I'm a private landowner and I'm not paying the hunting license, which 66% of all hunting licenses goes to pay for law enforcement because we can't use federal dollars for law enforcement, then you're receiving a benefit for something you're not paying for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'd like to hear your opinion on whether or not it's time for backpackers, campers, bird watchers to start paying an excise tax like we do. All right, if you're bird watching, are you receiving benefit from what hunters have done? Absolutely. Okay. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty simple. I mean, we're not just hooking bullet. I mean, if you look at these pictures behind me, I released indigo snakes this year. I released bald eagles back, gopher tortoises. Monies that hunters and fishermen are paying for restoring these habitats for, yes, deer, turkey, quail is also improving for these non-game animals, bird watchers, hikers, and backpackers, or whatever. So yeah, and, and I do a lot of seminars at Kiwanis clubs and Rotary clubs where I've got a lot of people that don't hunt, and that's one of the questions I ask, well, why should I buy a hunting license? Well, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I bird watch, I hike, okay? A lot of that land you hiked on, was paid for by a hunter. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, as you said before, the law enforcement that goes into enforce, like enforcing the laws on places like that. Well, and, <clears throat> and even taking it further, and this is always an eye-opener for, for people like that. I don't hunt, I don't fish, I shouldn't buy a license, okay? And you mentioned it earlier when we wasn't recording the tornadoes in Tuscaloosa. Who do you think were some of the first people in there? Hunters and fishermen. 
conservation enforcement officers and wildlife biologists that are being paid for by hunters because we had four-wheel drive trucks, we had chainsaws, we're used to working out in the elements. So every citizen in the state is receiving a service in natural disasters and emergencies that hunters and fishermen are paying for. So whether you hunt and fish or not, buying a hunting license helps fund that for everybody. I mean, we, we do things that you have a, a Alzheimer's patient walk out of a nursing home and get lost in the woods. Yeah, they, more than yeah. they call us to go look for them. You have a, an active shooter situation that gets out in the woods. We're there supporting other law enforcement agencies. Our guys are trained to do that. Hunters and fishermen are paying for that. So, yeah, mm -hmm. of course, uh, I, I think we all ought to have to help out a little bit. Mm, yeah. Um, you. you mentioned some of this money matching and Pittman-Robinson dollars goes to towards research. Um, I know we've recently, as a state, have been researching um, the wild turkey. Um, I know there's been a decline across the southeast. What's the um, the update on that? What are some of the things that the state are thinking? Um, I know we recently um, approved um, a change of the start date. Yeah, uh, it's the project will be finished this year, so I'm not going to give out any preliminary stats because all that can change and yeah. it can get twisted around. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to do some common sense things. This is not an Alabama issue. This is a southeastern issue. So we're not the only ones looking at it. Every other state in the southeast is, is looking at this. Um, preliminary results from a bunch of studies, not just ours, are showing that gobblers are being harvested prior to hens getting bred, which in turn is resulting in not as successful hatch. That's not just Alabama, that's southeast. So the, the idea is move the season date back a little bit to give those gobblers another. That was one of the reasons why the advisory board did that this year, but one of the main reasons was simplicity. Everybody knows gun season comes in the Saturday before Thanksgiving. Yeah. Period. It doesn't matter what the date is, that's when it comes in. It's been that way since I was a kid. Moving it to the third Saturday in March gives everybody a, this is when it's going to happen. It doesn't matter if it's the 14th or the 21st or the 12th is coming in that. So that was one of the reasons. Um, other issues that again just common sense for me you can see in here I'm a turkey hunter oh, yeah. I'm going to give you 10 cents for every deer in the state if I had to choose I've my bucket list is to kill a turkey in every state that's got a season this job has severely limited that <laughs> um, but I think I've killed turkeys in 18 or 19 states so far is that your Miriam out there? yeah yeah and Osceola Osceola mm -hmm. Goulds Eastern that one's got some spurs on him right yeah, there. Yeah, he's a big boy. <laughs> How many other states have a bag limit of five? Zero that I know of. Zero. So if somebody asked me as the director, 
So do you think you've got more turkeys than every other state in the nation? No, I don't. And then there's those that say, well, science says killing gobblers doesn't hinder. You can kill all the gobblers, and you, if you have a good hatch, there's going to be jakes coming in. So, Yeah, in theory, in a perfect world. We don't live in a perfect world, and I can guarantee you if the limit's five and I kill five every year, if the limit goes to four and I kill four every year, there's going to be at least one more turkey left. That I can guarantee there will be more gobblers left if we kill less. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's just, that's common sense. That's not biology. That's not politics. That's just common sense. No, I don't think we've got more turkeys in every other state. And no, I don't think we need to be shooting five. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing that on a couple of WMAs last year, we had like a 10-day delay. Yep. Uh, I'm guessing we're, that's we're research. testing that. The research with the hatch? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. It, that's the easiest thing to do. We own or manage those WMAs. We're not taking anything away from a private landowner. I'm sorry, but some of the public land guys are going to start a little bit later. But we're getting data to see if it does make a difference on these smaller blocks. So we don't do anything by the seat of our pants. Mm-hmm. Despite what a lot of people think, it's not two people sitting behind a closed door in Montgomery making these decisions. It's pretty well thought out. Not saying we're thinking of everything, but yeah, we're trying to cover all the bases because we talked about this earlier, managing wildlife is easy. Food, cover, and water, it's simple. Every living critter's got to have it, and then you manipulate it to do more and, and make bigger. That's it. You throw humans in it, it screws it up real quick. That's the monkey wrench. Talk about my work now. <laughs> <laughs> Staying on the research topic, um, let's open up this invasive species called the wild hog or mm-hmm. whatever you want to call him. I know we are, I believe I read we're one of the um, pilot states for a, particularly a, a bait, a nitrate or something mm-hmm. that possibly could use to curb back some yeah, of our I, wild hog issues? Actually, there was a symposium last week over in West Alabama, and that was the main, it was an invasive species symposium, but 90% of it was hogs. Um, there's, there's two toxicants out there right now. One is warfarin, which y'all know as rat bait, basically, except they're working on hogs. And the other one is sodium nitrite. USDA is working on tests with sodium nitrite. We are scheduled to be the second state to test it. We were supposed to have done it this August. Texas was first. They had some issues with some non-targets. They killed some sparrows on a couple of turkeys. The bait consistency was not what they were hoping it would be, so they've gone back to the formulation. We know it'll kill them. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt all the tests right now, they were talking about it last week, some of the preliminary stuff was killing 70% of the hogs within three hours. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's um, impressive. It's very humane. It's very quick. They eat a mouthful <laughs> of it and it basically depletes oxygen in their blood. They walk 100 yards, they get sleepy, they lay down, they go to sleep and they don't wake up. Yeah, so it sounds very ethical. It's, um, it, it is. Um, warfarin, um, 
I don't want to throw water on warfarin. I'm I'm all for anything that will work, but uh, Bronson Strickland with Mississippi MSU, State. MSU Deer Lab. Yeah, he did a humaneness study on warfarin. Um, and granted, that was one of the main reasons I went to it. He only had three pigs in his study because of university rules. Usually you have to say, we're not going to harm any animals in our study. Well, this one, your goal is to kill them. So they had to start small. He's going to do another study. But he fed this toxic warfarin bait to those three pigs for seven days, and only one of them died. Wow. Wow. Now, he said when they did the necropsies on the other two after they euthanized them, they still had all the symptoms. They probably wouldn't have made it. So both warfarin and the sodium nitrite work. One's real quick. More efficient. One's not. But right now, warfarin is on a faster track to get approved. So, again, I, we don't want to discount anything that can help us get rid of hogs. But we've got to be very cautious in what we do and how it's registered and how it's used. So there's going to be a lot of research on that coming out over the next 12 to 14 months that, that we're looking at hard. We're still in line to be right behind Texas. Hopefully by next August we'll be testing the sodium nitrite here. So I, I kind of got a follow up to that. When the I'm completely unfamiliar with this, but mm-hmm. when the hog eats it and runs off and dies, is there any like cross cross contamination? That's probably not the right word, but like well, a coyote eats the hog. That's part of the research. That's part of the research. Okay. Yeah. Right now, it's showing that both of them uh, pretty much stop with that animal. Mm-hmm. But there's still some concerns. What if the hog's got a bunch in his mouth and it crumbles out and gets in the water? There's still a lot of things. There's still a lot of research to be done right now. Mm -hmm. Preliminary studies are showing that both of them are as safe as a toxicant can be. It's not like Timic where a raccoon eats the Timic, it dies, a buzzard eats a raccoon, it dies, a possum eats a buzzard, and it dies. Mm -hmm. This looks like it may stop with the animal that consumes it. But again, this is preliminary stuff. So is is the goal with that complete elimination or just knocking back numbers? I don't think you can ever get complete elimination. That's that's unrealistic. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, you're talking... 97% 97% of Alabama is privately owned. Mm-hmm. Some private landowners like them. Some don't. Some so there's, off of them. there's where the rub is. We want to allow people every tool at their disposal to do what they need to do safely on their property. And I, I think these toxicants are, are definitely going to be a it's not going to be the end-all, be-all, but it's going to be something that maybe can help you get on top of them. Mm-hmm. So we're we're getting up on time here, so we'll just do a few more. Um, one that a buddy of mine wanted me to ask you, he's a big dog hunter in Talladega County. Um, I know a lot of those guys, <laughs> they have pretty strong feelings about dog hunting and everything, and uh, why is it that, like, 
Hollins, for instance, is in a dog hunting county, but you can't dog hunt on that wildlife management area. That's a can of worms. It is. <laughs> um, honestly, just user conflicts. Mm-hmm. We do have one WMA that we do allow dog hunting on. We actually help lay out stands and all that kind of stuff. Look, I we talked about it earlier. I grew up hunting dog. Me too. I mean, that's... In fact, I hunt with a dog every day that I go to the woods, except during turkey season. I carry my Australian Shepherd with me, whether I'm squirrel hunting, rabbit hunting, dove hunting, duck hunting, or deer hunting. Mm-hmm. So I'm not anti-dog. I'm anti-problem. Yeah. And nobody up here is against dog hunting. We're against your dog getting on my property and causing problems. That's it. If the dog would stay on the hunting club's property, there's not a problem. Back when we grew up dog hunting, everybody hunted together. Mm -hmm. It was a big social event, so it didn't matter if the dog got off the property. Well, now you've got somebody that has saved money their whole life. They bought their 200 acres or their 40 acres, and they've got a food plot sitting on it and they want to carry their grandkid to hunt that Saturday afternoon, they don't want a dog running through there at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. So it's just a user conflict issue. It's not that we're anti-dog hunting. Yeah. It's just you've got people hunting those WMAs that would not be happy. No. <laughs> and you've got neighboring landowners to those WMAs that would not be happy. Mm-hmm. So that's it. I mean, we're not against dog hunting. We work closely with Lonnie and the Dog Hunters Association. Mm-hmm. It's just a conflict issue. Yeah, yeah. And me and you have talked about that, Chad, a lot. How you grew up dog hunting, and uh, yeah, I miss the culture. I mean, it was one of the easiest on ramps to introduce young children. I mean, one of the beauties of dog hunting was that everybody did it. It was could, a social event. It was. You know, and some of the old men were there just to hear a dog race. Some the kids could go. You meet at the the skinning rack mm-hmm. in between. So, you know, kids could go catch the dogs. Yep. But with where we are, there's not as as many big track lands. A lot of those properties have been sold off by grant. We just it's conflict. It's, it, it, and it's never going to go back. Yeah. I miss it. I do too. I, I hate to see it die. I, I actually still get to go on two or three a year. So I still dog hunt every year with a club that's got 6,500 acres on the river. It's got the GPS on the dogs or whistle broke dogs or trained. And they still will get across every once in a while. But the neighbors around there understand they don't hunt every weekend. They only hunt like three Saturdays a year because it's that social environment. Everybody comes to the camp, meets up for breakfast. You go to the stand, you come back to the skinning shed. It's the old Southern tradition. Yeah. I don't ever want to see that gone. Mm-hmm. But people have got to understand this is not the 1970s and 1980s, and you've got to adapt. I mean, the critters we manage either adapt or they die, and a lot of times we don't do the same thing. If you want to continue to run dogs, adapt. Mm-hmm. Find you a place, get dogs that are trained, get the tracking collars and all that, you can still successfully dog hunt on your property. Mm-hmm. It's the rub when your dog infringes on my rights as a private landowner. 
That's where the problem is. Mm-hmm. It's not that anybody hates dog hunting. I don't care what you do on your own property. Just don't mess up me on my property. Mm-hmm. It's pretty simple. Yeah. I haven't had a chance to dog hunt, but I want to. I went to uh, Talladega National Forest this past February and did that uh, trash pickup day mm-hmm. with the Alabama Dog Hunters yep. Association. I mean, it's just a tremendous group of people, what, like woodsmen, you know, just great people to hang around with, knowledgeable people, and hopefully I get to share the woods with them this fall, but we'll see. Um, kind of moving on from that, there's some more things that we talked about uh, before we started recording. A bear season in Alabama. What's it look like? I'll be retired before it gets <laughs> here. But no, in all seriousness, I, I'm not going to say it's not going to happen because I do think our population is growing. I don't know what that threshold is going to be to say that, yes, we've got a viable, huntable population. But I'm guessing it will end up being something like the alligator hunts where you're only going to have certain areas. It's not going to be a statewide season. It's going to be isolated pockets, and you're only going to be able to kill two or three, five or six, eight or ten. I don't know what that number is, Mm -hmm. but it's going to be, if I had to guess, it'll be modeled after the the alligator program. What are are some of the big roadblocks with bear restoration in Alabama? Is it just, you know, urban centers? Suitable habitat. Yeah. I mean, that's... That, that's it. I mean, there's always been bears down around Creola and down in that part of the world. Southwest Alabama. Yep, they're expanding a little bit. We're getting some in Choctaw County now. It's just, unlike uh, hogs, they don't reproduce as fast. It takes them a little bit longer. So their progression is a lot slower. And then you've got the bears coming out of the North Georgia mountains, so we're getting an isolated pocket of bears up there. Um, I think it's coming, it's just going to take a while. Mm-hmm. But that's why, again, we're in a six-year project right now. I, one thing I did this year, as much property as I managed in Alabama, I'd never seen a bear. So I went on one of our trapping details and called a, called a female. She was a two-year-old female, and uh, they had uh, caught her mother when she was, and her sister were in the den when they were little bitty. Mm-hmm. They know all of this community there. They've got the mama tagged, the sister tagged, her tagged. So they're, we're building up a good database right now on bears in the state. Yeah, that's exciting. Do uh, you have any follow-up to that? I a follow-up to that. I mean, this might be another can of worms, but it's, I, I thought it was going to be longer. Um, but we had a huge scare last year with CWD showing up in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I know this is something that's getting a lot of publicity. Um, what are we doing as a state um, to help curb that entering into our state boundaries? Can you uh, mention some of the new um, inter- interstate laws that we've put in place? Yeah, I mean, we honestly, I think we're as good as we can be right now. We've been testing since 2002. We've tested over 8,000 deer statewide. Um, as of me sitting here today, I can tell you we do not have CWD in the state. Um, it's been illegal to bring live deer across state lines since the mid-70s. We still have people that do it. Um, it's been illegal for the past two years to bring a carcass of a deer back from a CWD positive state. Well, with Mississippi popping hot in the season, the board 
that our recommendation said no deer can come back into the state. Um, that's made a bunch of people mad. So it made you happy. It made a bunch of people mad. So we've got a CWD response plan that is a dynamic document. It changes based on the latest science and, and techniques. You can find it on our website at Outdoor Alabama that tells you exactly step by step what we're doing and how we're trying to keep everything out of here. We've got billboards up and down the interstates right now. We're doing radio campaigns, social media, magazine, TV. We're trying to get the right message out there. I don't want to scare people to death, but they need to understand that this is serious. Okay. I mean, dog hunting, baiting, night hunting, poaching, all that means nothing compared to, to CWD, what it can do to our agency and the state as a whole. So what are some of the possible like implications if it does make it here? If we get a positive case, what will change immediately for us? Again, that would take us another two hours. <laughs> it's, in that, it's in that document yeah. that it lays it out step by step each process. Mm -hmm. okay. um, it's pretty simple. This Again, this goes back to with the turkey thing. This wasn't something that two people sat in Montgomery and figured out. Um, our staff worked with staff from other states, international. Um, we took the best and the worst of everybody's CWD response plan. You know, unfortunately, a lot of people have been dealing with it. We took what worked for them, what didn't work for them, and melded it for Alabama. And there's, you know, there's people that don't like it. I understand. I don't like it either. I don't want to have to do some of the things that's going to have to be done, but hopefully we can stop it from getting here, but if it does, we have a plan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, CWD is definitely one of the more scary things kind of on the horizon right now, especially with the a lot of misinformation about it out there. Like, I mean, you know as good as I do, several well-known TV personalities coming out, you know, the snot-nosed biologist comments. Mm -hmm. I mean, just stuff like that is just wrong direction you know it is and all we can do is put out the right scientific information and hopefully people can read it and understand and form their own opinion mm -hmm. yeah, yeah one last thing I know you've gone around you've done your symposiums on this um, we've as a state enacted um, the online check-in mm -hmm. of both deer turkey and also snapper Will you tell us how that benefits our state biologists for doing their job if we would utilize that, which we're mandated to by law? <laughs> and again, this is pretty simple. And, and I'll just use me as an example. In my previous career as a wildlife consultant, people paid me to help them manage their property. What was the first thing that I did you start recording harvest? I inventory deer on that property where we could set reasonable expectations of what they could kill, how many they could kill. You keep records on it to see if what you're doing is having a positive or a negative effect. That's it. We have no idea what's being killed in Alabama or where. I mean, up until a few years ago, you could kill a buck and a doe a day. So, again, we rode people the wrong way. I'm sorry. This is my job now. 
is to try to manage the resources of the state, not for today, but for down the road. And we live in an instant gratification society. I'm not worried about anything but me today. We can't afford to do that. We've got to look down the road. Deer hunting alone, not to mention is it a way of life for a bunch of us, has dedicated our careers to managing these animals. It's a $1.3 billion industry for the state of Alabama with taxes and motels and gas and restaurants. It's a big business. I don't want to manage a big business on a guess. Yeah. So the better information we have, the better we can do our job and the better we can manage it. If we get the right information, we may can bump the buck limit up to four or five. We don't know because people are convinced that if I give it to you, you're going to take it away. Yeah, that's what we were talking about and on the way here. That's a, that's a generational thing. Again, you hunt in other states. I, I gave a well, seminar. You got a tag. Yeah, I gave a seminar the other night, and the guy asked me this question. He said, what would you do, do different on game check? If you had it to do all over again, what would you do different? So it had been implemented 50 years ago. That's the only thing I would do different. Because a lot of those states, when it went from a physical tag and a check station to an online reporting, those people had just as big a fit as our folks did going from nothing to an online. Because they that's what they were accustomed to. They were used to going to the check station, seeing what everybody killed. It was a social event, yeah. and they were looking at the ball, just taking data, and knew that they were using it to help them manage. So they thought the data was going to get worse. It's what you grow up with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Alabama hunters have not been asked. One of my biologists, one of the best sayings that I've ever heard, he said, for decades we ask Alabama hunters to pay a nominal fee and not kill each other. <laughs> you can't argue with that. That that's yeah. it. I'm one of them. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Alabama. I'm still here. I've been hunting here forty uh, forty years. That's the way it was, and that's nothing derogatory. But mm-hmm. as long as you didn't shoot somebody and pay ten dollars for a license, have at it. Go rape, pillage, have a good time. Mm-hmm. So. Um with uh, with with game check being mandatory these last two years, what do you think the uh, participation that participation rate has been? Thirty percent, maybe. Up from what do you think it was before? Ten. Yeah, that's an improvement. It, it's an improvement, and it's getting a little better. But and we're doing some research right now where we can try to take that thirty percent and figure out exactly what it is, but. Look, it's not going to get any better until people buy into it, mm-hmm. and that's going to take a while. Yeah. I was just about to ask, do you see it getting better in the not next, in the foreseeable future? And the reason why, I've had a bunch of people tell me, well, it's just this older crowd's not as technologically savvy. That's not it. It's a mentality. I spoke at the NWTF branch at Auburn. So this is all students, and I'm sitting there talking about game check, and I'm looking at a guy playing on his phone. As soon as I said mandatory, he started shaking his head. So I called him out. You're the problem. You're sitting there playing on your phone 
but yet you won't give us this information. You're the problem. Yeah. And then you're going to point a finger at me if something happens. Why didn't you do something? Well, I tried. Yeah. We can't do it alone. Yeah. We got to have help from everybody. That that's what gets me is people saying it's too hard cuz I mean, I've checked a bunch of stuff over the years and I mean, you can check crap in when you don't have service. Yes. I've killed a turkey way back on the parcel that we hunt, and I checked it in with no service. I mean, I was way down in this bottom, and then when I got out, you know, it was all registered. Mm-hmm. It had been recorded. I had my confirmation number, and it was like three clicks. It was easy. Again, we try to troubleshoot these things. I mean, we tested this a long time before it was rolled out to the public. Mm-hmm. I, I used to hunt a bunch. Before this job? I know what hunters want simple we tried to troubleshoot the problem well, i can't do it i ain't got service okay we fix that throw yeah. me another one <laughs> i mean I, look i'm a redneck from choctaw county i've been there and done that i've heard all the excuses i've done a lot of things in my past that i probably should, would get in trouble for now so it's hard to blow smoke up my skirt i've been there mm-hmm. well I gotta ask this last question because if I don't, Jamie'd be mad at us. But elk in Alabama, I know how you're gonna answer it. Yeah, <laughs> not gonna not gonna happen on on, on many fronts. And, and one, y'all y'all know how important CWD prevention is. Mm-hmm. Moving live cervids, that's the biggest risk. So that in and of itself would eliminate it for me. Mm-hmm. But we just don't have the habitat. And, and there's too many chances for human-animal conflicts. And unfortunately, we have to look at that. I mm-hmm. mean, it's they're big animals. They cover a lot of ground. We don't have the open space that the Kentucky reclaimed coal mines have or what they have in Wyoming and Colorado. So those animals, even if we put them in bankhead, they're coming down to the pastures and the farmhouses and the cornfields and the soybean fields on the edges not gonna happen mm-hmm. yeah Pat, that's that's how you answered it before <laughs> and but, if somebody asks me tomorrow i'm gonna answer it the same way yeah i'm gonna tell you the truth whether you like it or not mm-hmm. that you, you're, you're gonna know you're gonna know my answer yeah now a kind of a follow-up to that which there's this chances of this are like slim to none but if some other population moved into alabama would you take steps to eliminate it or would you let it go natural migration is i mean that's no we're not going to try to stop anything mm-hmm. like that yeah, but, that's what we're seeing from bears yeah yeah from yeah. North georgia yeah no i mean that's natural progression is one thing mm-hmm. human aid that's completely different mm-hmm. yeah that's that's kind of what i thought but you know you get the the tennessee population's growing and everything mm-hmm. there's always people talking which i mean i guess eventually they could but that's a long time away. Because, yep. like, Kentucky, Tennessee has the restoration zones, yep. and they don't want elk outside of yep. that. Because so. of human conflict. It's Which, not that they don't want elk there. They mm-hmm. want them, but they want them contained here. So, mm-hmm. and With uh, human conflict, could you explain that just real quick? As in, what, what kind of conflicts would the elk, elk be causing specifically? Well, it's one thing to hit an 80-pound doe. It'd be another thing to hit an 800-pound bull in a car going 60 miles an hour. Yeah. And crop damage, fence damage, just competing with native wildlife, it's just the risk is not worth the reward. Mm-hmm. 
there's too many other places that we can go hunt elk. We don't we don't have to have them in Alabama. Mm-hmm. All right, man, Chad, you got any concluding thoughts? I think that's it. Thought it was a great conversation. Yeah, I did too. You got anything, Chuck? I'm good. I'm good. Thank y'all for coming. Hopefully, uh, won't stir up too much for y'all <laughs> having me on. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, we do. Appreciate it. And I appreciate you, Chad, coming down and doing this with yeah. me, man. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. Look, last summer, y'all heard us talk a bunch about the Mobile Hunters Expo. It was an incredible event. A bunch of you guys came out to meet us. We got to talk to, I don't even know how many listeners. If you heard all that last year and you were like, dang, that sounded cool. I should have went to that. Here's your chance. You need to make it to this one. It's June 28th through June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. All right. Giving you a heads up here. So go ahead and mark it on your calendar. June 28th through June 30th, Dalton, Georgia is going to be the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. We're going to be there. A bunch of our past podcast guests are going to be there. There's going to be seminars. All of the mobile hunting companies are going to be there for you to try out gear before you buy it. It's like the one event of the year where all of the the, like the mobile hunter ecosystem just kind of congregates in one place. And Chris and Josh and the guys have done an absolutely phenomenal job putting this thing together over the last couple years. And it keeps getting better every year. So like I said, make sure you come see us. We're going to have a gigantic stack of free stickers to give away to every listener that stops by the booth. And we're going to have merch there to purchase. We're going to be recording podcasts, shooting videos, all kinds of stuff. So like I said, don't miss it. You can head on over to the mobilehuntersexpo.com to look at show schedules and dates and go ahead and grab your tickets. So y'all go check it out at the mobilehuntersexpo.com.